Today on the podcast, we'll talk about product-first companies and strategies to make them work even better as we get together with Des Trainer, co-founder of Intercom. All that and more on Business as Unusual, the podcast that is in the serious business of not taking business too seriously. We are indeed here with Des Trainer. I am Pep Rosenfeld, live on tape from uh, the TQ building in Amsterdam. And uh, Des, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Pep. It is uh, it's the, the pleasure is all mine. I think. I mean, we haven't we haven't talked yet, so the this, the pleasure can we'll really find out. Yeah, I have a good I have a good feeling though. So, uh, co-founder, chief strategy officer for Intercom. Uh, before that, a user interface designer, which is pretty clear from uh, the the things I've heard you say about uh, user interface and usability. Uh, lecture, and then it says failed PhD researcher. Mm-hmm. And I guess Correct. my first, I guess my my first question is 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 you know what what would the PhD have been, and what uh, what what tripped you up? So I guess I've always been uh, fascinated by uh, pedagogy and teaching, and that's probably why you say lecture there as well. My PhD research was an attempt to understand. Why on earth is the discipline of computer science so horrendously atrocious at teaching people how to program? And that was what I spent, I guess, three and a half years studying. I produced different educational tools. All you know, there's a, a long and varied story, but my uh, my findings were predominantly that a lot of this comes down to like uh, bad assessment early on. Uh, the one interesting trait of computer science versus anything else is that. You tend to see graduates of prestigious computer science institutions, like top leading colleges in the world or the universities of the world, who then go to sit a job interview and they can't write the most remedial of of hmm. programming uh, exercises. And I was just trying to work out what, what the hell is going on there. This is not the same for medicine. It's not the same for law. We have this really, really you know, unique situation in computer science, and my attempts were to study that. Ultimately, after three years, uh, three and a half years, I uh, I kind of ran out of steam. I realized when I started, I, I went to do a PhD straight out of out of my own degree, and um, it was one of those situations where I found myself kind of blindly chasing down the last few strands of something that I found that I just didn't really want anymore. So I kind of ran out of energy. It was it's like it's predominantly my fault. There were some like institutional hiccups I bumped into. Turns out a lot of universities don't accept the hypothesis that they spit out graduates who can't code. Uh, so you kind of bump into a lot of problems there. Uh, but yeah, it was it was it was a very interesting experience. Uh, bumped into a lot of sort of departmental politics and stuff like that along the way. But uh, yeah, it was uh, it was undeniably I would say a failure, but a very good failure because it kind of gave me the opportunity in the springboard to do other things. I mean, at some point, I think we're both supposed to say, well, I mean, all failure is good because you learn from failure. But, you know, I think some failures suck more than others. Yeah, exactly. That's the exact podcast answer I'm supposed to say. You know, we all, you know, I have no regrets. It turns that I've not really made any mistakes in life. You know, but, uh, but like, I'm just being honest. Like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I wouldn't trade those three years of my life for anything. No, no, actually. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. I, I feel like you were just one gap year, as we call it, away from, uh, you know, realizing, hey, what am I doing with my life? Yeah, I mean, I guess my version of working on what I'm doing in my life was to spend three years studying something that I still, I still do carry a lot of passion for. But ultimately, I ended with like with no degrees, no diplomas, maybe five to seven publications of various sorts. Um, but you know, I you know, I won't, I wouldn't say I totally regret it, but I would say it was definitely something I tried to do and failed to do. 
That is a that see that now that was that was an honest and yet still podcast friendly response. So well, well yeah, exactly, back. exactly. Not shocking anyone. And just and to any of the kids listening, uh, you know, t- take take a take a lesson from Des. A tough hypothesis to sell to the university is uh, let's find out why you guys suck so much at what you're doing. That's that's probably a, that's, a, that's a doozy. It is. It's it's it, exactly. <laughs> So I'd love to I'd love to start off uh, unless the telling the story bores you about uh, about how Intercom became what it is. I know you started in 2011 with uh, you know mm-hmm. what you plus three people, no revenue, yep. and a six million dollar valuation. And last year it was 600 people, 30,000 customers, and over one billion uh, valuation. Yeah, so that's there uh, <clears throat> to kind of that's the the start point at the current point if you like. Um, why we started Intercom is perhaps the more the more uh, the more interesting thing, more set on uh, revenue or, or evaluation. I think like uh, our motivation at the start was like we before Intercom, the four of us had run a different web software product where we had like you know maybe a few thousand customers who were paying us, but we had this weird problem where we were so incredibly divorced from our customers. We'd never met a single customer. There were like. Now, we were in Dublin, where it turns out there was, we were selling a tool to developers, specifically developers of a programming framework called Ruby on Rails, and there's just not a lot of them in Dublin. And I remember, like when we were like looking at, a, at like our invoice and going out, there was a single street in San Francisco where we had more customers than we did in all of Ireland. So that kind of gave us a sense of like, hmm, we really are quite disconnected from our customers. So we started building this tool inside of our previous product. Um, and that's, what the tool would do is let us send messages to our customers inside the product while they were using the product. And it let the customers talk back to us. So we could say things like, hey, what should we work on next? And people would start replying. And as we started to build this out, the obvious extensions were like, let us see who has read the message and who hasn't. And that became very powerful to an internet uh, business because you could sort of say, that would also tell you who's using my product right now. And that was useful information. And as we sort of continued to work on this, I remember like various different pennies dropped along the way. But one of them was we, uh, we asked some version of what should we work on next. And the reply we got was, you know, guys, I'm not actually that really psyched about your product here. However, this little widget thing that you're using to talk to me, I love. What is it? And we're like, huh, that's interesting. Or, or, or like, our little bespoke ad hoc feedback <laughs> system thing is proving to be more popular than the product we built it for. And, um, and we sort of took that in, took that insight and various other insights. We knew ourselves because we ran internet business uh, ourselves. We knew like that there was real value in some of the insights that we were generating. So we kind of thought, uh, thought about it and thought about it and said like, well, what, what if we built a tool that let like, you see and talk to your users? Uh, what would that be? And, and we kind of evolved on that for quite a while and, the the phrase like intercom came up using the metaphor of like a real world intercom that lets you sure. see and talk to people and uh, the intercom logo is like eyes and a mouth representing seeing and talking and uh, and we sort of realized that maybe we could build a more general purpose version of this and see if if other internet businesses find it useful uh, so that led to us I think uh, launching a beta on July first twenty eleven. Uh, and kind of taking it from there, and then we formally like we raised a million dollars. We, we, you know, we decided at that point we think this is a big idea. Let's go do the whole San Francisco Silicon Valley thing. So our CEO went over. He hit the streets in San Francisco, got like told the usual thousand no's and three yeses until eventually we kind of you know fifty grand here, fifty grand there, twenty grand, five grand, ten grand, etc. 
um, we re- we raised just a, a million dollars, and we announced that I think it's the January of 2012, and um, and then we basically started hiring and got going. And uh, and I won't bore you with all the details, but you know, 596 people later, here I am on a podcast. You know? huh. I, now, so <clears throat> I just because I've got a couple of follow up questions from 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 the story. Yeah. The I just uh, I watched your your Nordic Business Forum talk from uh, 2016. Mm-hmm. And in that, yep. you, you talked about product first, you know, companies mm-hmm. as opposed to tech first or marketing first or sales first. Yeah, yeah. And I wanted to mm-hmm. clarify, it sounds like when you say product first, you mean solution first almost, you know. Yes. What, yeah, what yeah. Pro- yeah, I mean, I, I, I think like that's not always the case, unfortunately, but like that, yeah, you are correct. Solution first is what I mean. But I had no idea that uh, that, that was such a, I mean, that's literally what you guys did. You 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 had a problem. You found a workaround, and then you now mm-hmm. your 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 company is the workaround. Yeah, the billion dollar workaround. Exactly. That's fantastic. Yeah, the billion dollar workaround. That doesn't make it sound like a better workaround. <laughs> I'll give you that. <laughs> um, the uh, the other thing you talked about is how you know in in now that the 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 way that the way we sell changes, uh, you don't have to send your CEOs around with a PowerPoint and I just find it hilarious that, and yet that's exactly what you did. Uh, yeah. Uh, you mean to raise the money or? Well, I, I, oh, uh, of course. Cause, cause in the talk you were talking about to make the sale, not to, not to, not to raise the money. To oh, raise the money. yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, like it is still true that like at the upper echelons of enterprise sales, you, you do need to be there in person and actually deliver a sales pitch. Uh, I think like, Typically, like what, what you know, the way the world has shifted a little bit in in the time since is like it used to be the case that your first contact would be like you know you'd fly to their office, come in and present to a board of procurement. I think now what actually happens the, the sort of the new uh, way wave of enterprise adoption looks like people start using your product in a company. Uh, maybe like there's a pocket of people here, a pocket of people there, and at some point you decide you want to sign like a master service agreement or some sort of you know enterprise type deal. And at that point, you're still probably going to be ending up on a flight or at the very least on a eleven way uh, sort of WebEx conference type thing to go through everything from security to finance to procurement to adoption training, etc. But yeah, it, it is like the world is definitely changing from an adoption point of view. Um, and I think that's one of the biggest advantages. Like some of like the best companies of this generation, if you want to look at say Slack or, or any of the Atlassian stuff, they absolutely get adopted like from the bottom up in an org. It's not no longer the case that like the the CTO or the, or the CIO makes one big purchase and forces it down everyone's throats. It's much more that the the people working in the company decide, hey, this is a cool way for us to collaborate. Let's start using it. And at some point, the product has gone viral around the company, and all of a sudden, you know, you, when you're having the sales discussion. It's much more about like how much and much less about should we use this, which is a significant change. Yeah, that's uh, that's a huge. Change. It's just funny to me that uh, that 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 the exam that the examples you're talking about are all sort of internal communication, internal collaboration tools. I'm just trying to scratch mm-hmm. my head and think about other you know about other tools that that spread the same way but have a, a different function. Yeah, I I, I guess that. Um, it, 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 so there's an interesting question here. So, like, if you take, there are some areas where, like, uh, where they're not susceptible to that type of viral spread, and usually what that what causes that is, if you take something like, say, uh, human resources information, the HRIS space, so the big player there would be something like Workday. 
it is just not the case that like four people on a random team in a pocket of the company are going to be like, you know what we need? Better employee records. You know, that's not going to kick off and go viral in the same way. So I think what you see is the the adoption uh, from the sort of grassroots up will happen when it actually affects, when the tool choice affects the individual contributor and it's solving a problem that they have. However, if you looked at something like, say, expense tracking, uh, that's something. That's a problem that the business has more so than the, the individual. So as a result, in those areas, the business will still kind of purchase at the top level and force it downwards in a, some sort of compliance type manner. So I, I, I do think I've seen a lot of startups kind of get this mixed up and think that they can sell, you know, like, oh, like uh, employee contract auditing software and that somehow it will go viral because Debbie and account is going to, so impressed by it or something like that like it's, it's more, like they're the tools where you actually you are selling to like the the sea level straight away and hoping that it trickles down hmm. i have to i have to say that uh, just to confirm what you're saying I've, I've sat at two events recently where different companies hr departments were releasing kind of workday replacements mm-hmm. or uh, or enhancers and yeah those were those events were all hey hr team we're selling it to you, and now you can sell it to your teams and to the managers that yeah. are actually going to have to use it. It was 100% what you're describing. Yeah. And, and like the best part is it's not even a sale because for your employees to get paid, they have to log in and use it. So we, but we don't tell if it's good software or not, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Uh, so, like, yeah so, so as a result, the, um, what's interesting there is like those areas are like they have some of what I would call like, the least, let's say, polished or the least modern feeling software, and everyone likes to poke holes and make fun of them for that. But the thing I just say is it's like, you know, you, you're literally, there's no ROI in selling, in hiring the world's best visual designers to make a compelling and beautiful HRIS system because mm-hmm. no one's actually buying beauty there. It would be like, uh, I'm sure this is some funnier metaphor, but it would be like selling like uh, like something that like nobody wants to buy at all uh, and then trying to make it differentiable based on it having a nice scent or something. It's like, well, that's not the compelling reason that causes the purchase here whatsoever. So uh, I, I think like it, you, you, it's almost like you're differentiating in a way that makes no sense whatsoever. It's like uh, in 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 your talk you were talking about I forget what it was, but some old old timey software sale, and with that you'd get like a, an audio tape to listen to, which is like oh this has yeah that was uh, nothing yeah. to do with it. Yeah, yeah. So that was uh, the first ever release of Salesforce in '99. They would give away a Zig Ziglar tape, uh, one of those like motivational tapes. Uh, if uh, if you would sign up within the first seven days, or something like that. that that was their that was their like you know differentiator if you like. Although Salesforce had a they had a lot more you know, they're they're kind of pushing a boat up the hill because they they were the company that had to convince the world that you could actually use software over the internet. So they they had a heavier lift than most of us. So you kind of forgive a lot of their early techniques. <laughs> I guess I guess I appreciate it. I want to go back in time and say thank you. Um, <laughs> exactly. The uh, it's it, it, so. Uh, Quick tangent: A lot of what I do is I go I go to events like the ones I was describing and sort of write comedy about the stuff that's bothering everybody. This like, oh, here's what they're scared of with the new strategy, or here's here's what's bugging them about their current state of affairs. And so often the the, the crappy interfaces that nobody thinks about because they think nobody cares is the top mm-hmm. of the list. And this is awfully slow, and it takes forever to to do our receipts or our yeah. expenses. Yeah. And uh, it's 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 just how funny how these decisions you're talking about the, I mean they really like this is what the people are complaining about at companies it's 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 really yeah it's like well anywhere where like the buyer is not the user you kind of get the product you deserve in a sense you know and uh, yeah. when you when the buyer and the user are like quite far apart 
it's and uh, you know there's that there's that famous theory of like there's like the four ways money is spent so like pep can spend money you can spend your money on you you can spend your money on me you can spend someone else's money on you and you can spend someone else's money on someone else right that's the kind of the four ways money gets spent and your kind of value calculation is very different depending yeah. on whether it's your money or not or depending on whether or not you're the recipient so when it's someone else's money on you first class travel is a must-have when it's your money on somebody else they can fly economy right and uh, and I, I think you know there's a similar like type of like a uh, similar like set of rules to govern software as it's purchased it's like you can buy your company software and you use it or you can buy your company software and you don't use it uh, and i think uh that's like, you know, that basically triggers whether or not people give a shit about the UI. And most of the time they don't. There's also, I think, um, there's like what I would call like a compelled reason as well. So like some software you buy and you are going to pass a company law effectively that says we now have to use it. So all receipts must be processed via this. All sick leave must be requested via this tool. And when you do that, you don't have to worry about adoption. As the purchaser of the software, you're just like, hey, I'm just going to tell them to use it. It's now their job. Uh, and that works fine. Um, but again, it means that the UI can be clunky as hell. There's other tools where you buy and you're like, you know, you might say, hey, we're going to purchase a new, like, a new bug tracker. It's called Jira. It's by Atlassian. And you buy it and then you hope, you hope that everyone uses that as a single source of where all our bugs are tracked. And, uh, and if that works, that's a great thing. But if it only half works, then it's a zero value because now you ultimately end up with more tools. Uh, so like, I think it, you know, another version of this is, can I legally mandate my team to use this or will they find some cheeky workaround that they're not going to tell me about? And, uh, and, in the, and again, in that area, that's when you start to care about the UI. You're like, I need yeah. to believe that this is the best way to track stuff, not not the way I'm going to legally force people to behave through. <laughs> right. I kind of I kind of want them to do it without cursing at me while they're doing it. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, maybe we're uh, maybe we're, we're touching on some of the uh, on some of these items already, but you and I are going to see each other in a month in uh, Stockholm right. at the Nordic Business yeah. Forum there, and I wonder if you can give us like a little sneaky. I'm gonna I'm gonna go ahead and say cheeky because you said it, and I, I enjoy saying cheeky. Mm-hmm. A little cheeky preview of what you of what you're gonna what you're gonna be talking about then. Sure. So like the, the sneaky cheeky preview, from my point of view, is um, <clears throat> it is kind of a, a partial extension of what we were just talking about. But I think like the the if we zoom out one little bit, like the biggest change we've seen in software over the past, uh, like say, thirty years, has been this idea of moving to like recurring revenue. And in fact, uh, and that, that that meaning that instead of buying something once, you buy it every month for the rest of your life, effectively, for as long as you have that problem that the software solves. And I think. You know, at the previous Nordic Business Forum, a lot of what I t- talked about was how that kind of changes uh, how you think about uh, like adoption and engagement of a tool. So, if Adobe sells you Photoshop for a grand and you buy their DVD and you bring it home, they consider their job to be done. But today, Adobe sells you Photoshop for forty dollars from month one and forty dollars from month two and every month onwards. Now they actually care if you use the product because if you don't use it, you're going to cancel. So. What that means is like all revenue is moving towards this recurring revenue model because it's more predictable. Um, but the, uh, the the one thing that has fundamentally changed in all this has been the role of marketing. I uh, think marketing used to be obsessed with this idea of uh, just conversion. Like we just get the customer to sign up. And once they've signed up, our job is done. 
we record that as a win in our spreadsheet and we get the attribution and we can say it was our email campaign that did it. And I think in today's world, marketing is much, much less about a single lifetime value. And to do that correctly, you now need to obsess about your customer's success. So their job of marketing is much is much less about like the top of funnel and spitting people out. And it's much more about like genuine customer engagement through the life cycle. So that the customer like not only doesn't quit, but ideally expands and uses your product more and more, which means that marketing, all of its previous tooling and all of its previous thinking has been focused on like conversion rate optimization and SEO. And I think now it's going to be much more about customer engagement, customer usage, uh, customer feature usage, customer expansion, customer success. And what the talk will do is kind of cover that shift, how to prepare for it, and what mar- how marketers need to be thinking about this uh, and this whole shift, by the way, is happening not just in software. Software is obviously like the area where I experience it most, but right. you can look at anything like, you know, razor blades used to be bought one at a time and now they're bought by subscription. And the same is true for everything from like beauty products to food to groceries. Printer everything ink. is moving towards printer ink. Uh, even like last week or the week before, Apple have basically said like, hey, Turns out you're now going to subscribe to our arcade. That's where all our games are. You're going to subscribe to Apple News Plus. That's where you're going to get all your magazines from. You're going to subscribe to our music. So people don't buy music now. They rent music. They rent arcade games. They rent magazines. And oh, this whole world like, is shifting to just recurring revenue consistently. And the biggest, the macro trend there for marketing is that you move from this idea of like brand polygamy, which is like, hey, I love multiple different razor blades, to brand monogamy, as in, hey, I've made this decision once. And I've engaged with the product once, and now I'm going to use that for the rest of my life. And uh, I think the the sort of all of the tooling and thinking within marketing needs to kind of adapt for this new reality. Now, I think, uh, and of course, we are here to looking at it from a from a seller's point of view. But but I think there's a, there's a frequently an instinct from the buyer's point of view, which is you know this is no good for me. I used to pay you know the thousand dollars once for my Adobe thing. By the way, uh, inflation has hit your talk because uh, th- uh, three years ago. The Adobe once off was eight hundred, and it was only twenty dollars oh, right. a month in your example. So I just love that inflation. Oh, okay. Right. Um, but uh, <laughs> but 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 the more we're talking, the more I'm thinking. Actually, as a buyer, I love the idea that 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 someone thinks I have to keep improving and and keep, you know, a real conversation going with 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 the buyer, or else he's going to stop buying. I, I think that's way better, wouldn't you say? Yeah. Yeah. No, I I, I do think like uh, I so I, first of all, I fundamentally agree. Yes, it is better. Uh, the interesting pieces of this are like, they're, they're like when Spotify launched, there was a kind of a knee-jerk reaction of something along the lines of, I used to own my music, and now I don't own it anymore, because if I quit Spotify, I lose it all. And it took people a while for that kind of to set in as being like, uh, as, as being true, but not the bit, like, you know, but being like a worthwhile trade-off, if you like. And I think with software, it's especially more, uh, like music necessarily, like music itself, like the Spotify experience will get better because every new artist will go on there too. So when I first subscribed to Spotify seven years ago, they had less music than they do today, and yet I'm not paying any more money. So, so that has been, like in general, the product has, has improved for me. Uh, but what's more interesting is within software, it does mean that like, if, let's say if you take Salesforce as an example, if you had the world's best CRM in 2010 uh, and everyone signed up and they're all paying like whatever dollars per month, you can't assume that they're all going to stick around because they choose every month to continue to use your product. So if there is a better product out there that has an easy way to switch from yours to theirs, 
you will lose as a business, but more more excitingly from your point of view as a customer, you basically have the opportunity every month to ensure that you're using the best available software, which means it's not like if you consider the, the exact extreme opposite of this would be, say, something like buying a car today. You buy a car, and the reason there's a lot of anxiety and fear is because it's a one-time big expensive purchase. And if you yeah. get it wrong, or like three days later you realize, oh, there's a new Tesla, I should have got that, tough shit. Whereas in software, you're like, okay, well, let's make make a plan, and in three months' time, we're going to quit and move to the other world. Uh, and that means, as a buyer, you're in a position to always use the best available for your price point, for your chosen price point, et cetera, um, which is, you know, is a totally different world to what it was years ago. So it kind of forces businesses to continue to improve, forces them to make sure that they're like still a good offering and that they've invested in customer relationships. Because obviously new new competitors come on the market all the time, and they always have like some new bell or some new whistle. But you need, you know, if you have a good, have a good solid customer relationship, the customer will trust that you'll either add that better whistle if it proves to be useful, and if it doesn't prove to be useful, like they they won't go and quit over it anyway. So you kind of like, you know, the, the ultimately the buyer wins in this world, uh, and from a from a business's point of view, I think the entrant wins in that you know because customers are much more mobile than they used to be let's say, in the era of, like, Microsoft antitrust time, like, switching off Windows was impossible, you know. Like, that type of stickiness uh, has faded away, and that means that's a great thing for a new companies starting off, because if you want to build the next best time-tracking app, you're only asking people to try once, and that helps, you know. I'm just now thinking that, like, a company... So I, I'm a, I use Evernote a lot, and whenever people talk to me about yeah. their note-keeping app, I always go, ooh, boy, that actually sounds pretty good, but... I have no idea yeah. how easy or hard it is to get to, to transfer from, from Evernote to everywhere else. And it's just making me wonder yeah. if part of the, 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 the sneaky cheeky uh, SaaS yeah. future will be, oh, yeah, it's, it's actually slightly different to migrate off of our ecosystem now that you're here. Absolutely. So I think uh, so there's a few, a few thoughts there. One is like, uh, as a product owner, like your job, like you shouldn't be relying on it being, uh, on it being, difficult to quit if you know what i mean you should rely on it being like uh, in a way like one way we can keep ourselves honest is by saying hey let's make it easy for people to switch and then let's just make sure our software is always good enough so that they don't versus like you know making it difficult might look like you don't make exports possible or you don't you use some obscure file format that you won't let anyone else understand so that they can't interoperate with you like say microsoft word did back in the day huh. um so that's my first thought is just a good way to keep yourself honest in this world is to accept that people can easily quit uh, and then on the other side, for customer adoption, a good way to ease the wheels of adoption, if you like, is simply to build importers. So you're saying you use Evernote. I would recommend you look at a tool called Bear, B-E-A-R. Uh, it is a very, very, very cool note-taking app. It probably does everything you want. But one of the core features Bear has, if you click you know, on the very start menu, it says, would you like to import from Evernote, yes or no? And if you say yes, you give it your details, and it pulls down your entire record. So like this kind of... They've tackled your immediate anxiety and made it so that you, your on-ramp onto this new note-taking tool is seamless, and that's like massively helpful. Now, let me say at this juncture two things. One, to anyone, uh, to, to everyone listening, please feel free to tweet your thoughts and feedback with the hashtag business as unusual. Um, and I, as, a, as, a, as a corollary, if you're uh, from Evernote and listening, you know, don't screw with my stuff just because I'm, you know, doubting you, uh, you know, here. But I, but, but it's bear, bear like the animal. Yeah, b e a r dot app. Yeah, exactly. 
I mean, it, it's one of a litany of modern note-taking tools, to be clear. It's, it's the one I happen to use. Uh, I still, I mean, I, I remain impressed with Evernote, but I think their their product, uh, my needs and, uh, and their solutions kind of deviated at some point. And Barris feels a lot more like the older Evernote, where it's a lot more simple and focused. That's how I describe it. Hmm. Um, okay, a little, a little, a little, a little pivot point. Uh, you, mm-hmm. uh, being a man of many uh, two-axis uh, metaphors, you've you've talked about mm-hmm. the axis of uh, effort versus impact. And how mm-hmm. you, know, you shouldn't get you shouldn't get trapped in in, in in the in the low impact low effort projects, even though they're easy and, yeah. and satisfying, they're a waste of time. You've also talked about the axes of uh, of what how many you know the, the amount of your customers using a certain feature, and 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 the um, and how often they use it. And I just yeah. wonder, and you've you warned us about not falling into those traps. I really wonder, just personally for you, how often do you find yourself in one of those trap zones and literally think to yourself, God damn it, I just gave a talk about not doing this thing I'm doing right now. Yeah, so I, I think on the first one, like this idea of like, uh, like uh, pursuing low effort, low impact tactics, I think anytime I either don't hold myself accountable or a team in Intercom doesn't hold themselves accountable, that's the normal state. Like the normal state of people is to not rock the boat and the way you don't rock the boat is two things. One is you don't lock up your team on a long, like six-month-long project or whatever. And two, you don't try anything that could possibly go wrong. And things that could go wrong are also things that could go right. And things that definitely won't do, can't do too much harm are also the same things that will never do too much good either. So, uh, so I think like for as long as you are in any way conservative-minded, like in that you're not, you're not really trying, you're not really willing to take any risks. The normal state of a team is low effort, low impact work, and lots of it. So that, what it looks like is, hey, we're going to make a small tweak to this thing this week and this other thing the next week, and who knows? After six of these tweaks, we might have achieved a small improvement somewhere. But like you can't say we're not working hard, and um, and I think that's the natural state. So anytime I take, anytime I stop holding myself accountable, anytime I look at certain uh, product teams and uh, what they're doing, like. I, I just I don't I don't necessarily blame people uh, for for being in that state. I, I I accept that that's the norm for people, even though people would disagree and say no no we were pursuing massively impactful stuff. So um I I, I so to answer your question all the damn time uh, <laughs> I, I find myself in that all the damn time uh, and half the you know, half the reason uh, sometimes uh, these talks are like therapeutic uh, and half the reason I say these things out loud is to kind of hold myself accountable uh, and for my accountable too. Uh, so, like, yeah, I, I would say on, on that exact one, we see it a lot and we talk about it a lot. And it's useful uh, to ask people uh, when, you know, when you considered everything that you wanted to do in your roadmap, what was the high effort, high impact stuff? What was the low effort, high impact stuff? Uh, and where did the current, like, you know, for each of these items in your roadmap, where would you place them on this two by two? Mm-hmm. And that kind of is a good is a good sort of framing for, like, are you being brave enough? Are you swinging for the fences or are you playing it safe? And just to be clear, playing it safe is sometimes a very sane strategy. Like if you've just gone through an epic product launch, it's actually okay to spend a quarter working out the kinks. And the kinks will often be like, just fix this little piece, fix that little piece. That's totally fine. And also, frankly, it gives the team themselves a kind of cognitive uh, rest um, because you don't want to kind of stockpile a lot of risk. You kind of need feedback from the market before you can make any sort of big wave decision. So, uh, so anyway, that's on that piece. On the <clears throat> on the other side of it, um, the 
like how many people are using this feature and how often do they use it. I think like that's kind of the essence of product strategy for me. It's it's the best way I could I can sort of evaluate any piece of product uh, planning that gets done is like what features are we working on and why and for the for the work you have planned will this make the feature more satisfying to use will it make people use it more or will it make more people use it and if if there's not good answers to those things oftentimes it's it's like kind of a it's a great sign that the roadmap itself has been poorly conceived so uh so i i do refer, refer to that quite a bit and it's um it's also it, you know, for us within Intercom, like our product space is quite large. We sell software for sales support and marketing teams. So we already have a wide product space, mm-hmm. which means that we just don't have the luxury of having features that are very, very like low usage or very infrequent usage. It's like our product is complicated enough without all that extra valueless stuff. So we need to have this sort of framework to remind ourselves, hey, I know we thought this was a cool thing last year, but fast forward 12 months, we've had a conversation with the market. The market hasn't responded well, so we need to kill this feature. Uh, and that's going to suck because there's still going to be like 800 people who use it all the time. But it is only 800 out of the few hundred thousand that we have. So we need to kill it and we need to piss off those 800 people and, and take, our, take our beating in a sense because we need a simpler product and we just can't afford to have you know, tabs upon tabs upon buttons upon tabs uh, for customers to navigate. It's just not useful. And now you're making me think of of Google's, you know, famously killing off features that that, uh, you know, of course their 900 is probably a lot bigger number. So probably nine million, yeah, tell yeah. me. But, yeah. uh, but the philosophy That's, is the same. Yeah, and like, and people always like, oh, what happened to Google Reader? And I'm like, like Google Reader has I think, like 30 million people. I'm like, and it's like, how the hell could there's 30 million? Like, you don't realize how small 30 million is in the scheme of Google. Yeah. You just don't realize it's like it's not that big a deal, especially when it's clearly not monetizable. There's no obvious ancillary benefits from using it, uh, and like, but people the inbox by Gmail. I think they killed finally yesterday or today or something like that. Yeah. Uh, but like again, you know, when you when you're in it, like I've never worked in those companies, but I in my head I loosely describe them as the big leagues. And when you're in the big leagues, if, like if you're not talking about like 100 million users or so, you're just not really relevant. Like everyone on earth uses Google, so what percentage of them are going to use your tool? And is and like the other thing that you see a lot is like. How do you do until this feature generates seventy five million dollars in annual revenue? And you're like, literally, I swear to God, Google's, uh, you know, like I would say, like a single link on page four of a curious, bizarre search term probably generates more income than that. And uh, and people are again, it's just it's hard to understand the staggering uh, scale that these companies are at when you're like a ten person team in a garage in Amsterdam. Uh, and you're thinking $65 million of annual revenue sounds pretty good to us, you know? <laughs> it sounds like our five-year goal. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's, when, what, that's yeah. when you realize Google has correctly named themselves because their numbers are big. Yes. Um, so let, yeah. let, me go, let me go back to what you just said, though, about uh, sort of that kind of sine wave of take a risk and then work out the kinks, take a risk and mm-hmm. work out the kinks. So there must be that moment you realize, hey, it's, it's time for us to take a swing. It's time for something. But but how yeah. do you know? How do you know it's time to take that risk? Um I know that you've you you you've, you've talked about you know when when competitors start copying your features, don't copy them back, or you become a commodity. And I was going to ask mm-hmm. what do you do when the competitors copy you, but it's not. I, but I, now I have a feeling I can guess your answer, which is that's when it's time to take the risk. It's definitely a good sign. I mean, if competitors are copying, I mean, the other side of it is, and and they're making inroads. Like so, yeah. usually like a competitor simply copying you, uh, it won't work unless a 
they are have a better route to market than you do. So as in, uh, they are better at marketing or whatever. B, they're coming in at hilariously lower price point. Uh, as in, like for businesses to care, it would have to be like you know ten apps or whatever. Or C, and this is probably one where we feel the most. Uh, like their the competitor themselves is a lot larger than you, such that all they need to do is just they can already have a good market just selling to their existing customers. And I think that's the you know that's the, the the three times when you need to be worried about a direct copycat and intercom has had dozens of direct copycats over the years. Um, I think in general, in terms of taking a swing, the first thing you need to have uh, is actually the core idea, like what's the next evolution of this product line or our thinking here. Uh, and, until, and I think you know, I, I think some of the worst mistakes I've seen made by companies have been like trying to force that, like as in, hey, it's Q2 and we said we're going to ship something innovative. What are we going to go with? <laughs> uh, you you kind of you need to make sure that there's actually some depth of thinking there, and that you've kind of like played it out in your head, and maybe you've talked to customers or would be customers, and you've sort of sanity checked it. The other piece is like, generally speaking, your existing business needs to be pretty solid uh, for you to have the sort of bedrock to take a swing. So if, if you have a product line that's like that's currently bleeding, as in like, hey, there's like 55 live bugs that are like priority zero, and everyone's experiencing them every day not a good time to be like introducing our new uh, feature you know because people that that's not what they're concerned about so you kind of need to have a fairly stable sort of uh, bedrock to be moving from and a good idea that's like that's generally it um, and the exact opposite of either of those will be like say right after you launch a new product you don't have any stability because you know you've, you've basically yeah. like I always describe a product as being like a conversation with the market you put something out there you and you see what bits resonate and what bits don't, and then you react and adapt. And sometimes nothing resonates, and that's when you have to stop that conversation. But um, I think once you once you launch a product, there's a lot of noise. You need everything to settle. So there's just there's no point in trying to sort of say, "And oh, let's do version two. It's like, well, we don't even know what happened to version one yet. So uh, so I think that's a good time to move into sort of like maintenance mode, uh, tackle the sort of the, the sure shots, the the low hanging fruit, the common bugs, etc. But yeah, if you have steady fees and you have a new idea, that's exactly what you're doing. It. it also, frankly, just depends on the stage of your company. Like if you know, companies kind of go through, like um, they move from creation to like uh, sustaining innovation. So like they're either, they're either trying to build new shit and assault the market or they're, they're then trying to protect their existing business. And I think um, in the early days, you should really only be swinging for defenses. But once you have a successful line of business, like your defensive strategy has to be a part of it as well. You need you need to make sure that you're like you're tying your customers in with like a great product experience and and, uh, and that they're like sticking around and it's like your churn is good or your like your churn is low and the other obviously core metric you care about there is your uh, net dollar retention is a very technical phrase but basically means of the hundred dollars we took in this month, how much are they paying us in a year's time? Is it hundred twenty dollars? Is it hundred and forty dollars? Like are our customers getting bigger or are they bleeding away? And you want them to be getting bigger over time. Well, uh, so now I've got a related question, but I'm just noticing we're, we're, we're getting close to running out of time. So this will be toward the end of our conversation. Um, but but sure. you've said, you've, you've warned folks uh, not to get sucked into what you've called the black hole of tiny optimizations and no one to reset, mm -hmm. which sounds like a different fork of what we were just talking about. So what I want to ask you is, is you know, any hints on, on, on how to know when it's time for that reset? Yeah, so I think optimization as a strategy, well, it's not even a strategy, optimization as a tactic, basically, its core assumption, and this could be true for like your product or your marketing page or your email campaign or anything, frankly, the assumption in optimization is that 
we are doing the right thing and we just need to do it as well as we can. And uh, and I, and so, like, you know, you might be like, hey, uh, generally speaking, the direction of this product marketing is resonating. Um, we just need to clarify and make our call to action more obvious. But its core assumption is things are good. Now, things are good is obviously uh, only true in software anyway for, like, a, a snapshot of time. At some point, you know, you know, the world changes, you have new competitors, people ripping off your language, you're, you know, maybe you're just your general style is wrong. But for sure, like other things, like you're, you've released better software in the meantime, your product has changed or whatever. So I think the highest level answer I give you is like, you optimize when you're satisfied with the performance of your existing strategy. And, uh, and that should only ever be true for a period of time. Now, to be specific in the world of say, like um, software, an area where, like, it, you know, you have to really ask yourself this question a lot is it's got to do with, like, what does it feel like to start using this software? So, for example, when you first signed up for Evernote, they probably had less features and less valuable features than they do today. Uh, and Or maybe that's not true. That's true. No, it's 100% um, true. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so as a result, the sign-up flow that you would have gone to, like, whatever, 10 years ago, uh, probably didn't call out all those cool features because, frankly, they didn't exist. So if you're Evernote, your job is not to keep optimizing the thing that worked 10 years ago. Your job is to design the thing that works today. And that, like, I think what, what I see a lot in, in teams who work on like these sort of metric-driven initiatives is they look for like the incremental wins. They say, hey, we tried a green sign-up button and call to action, and that got us 0.1% extra. Let's try making it red. It might get us 0.15% extra. Uh, whereas if, you, if they actually took a step back, they'd be like, you know what? When we designed this flow, we didn't have this entire reporting feature, and we didn't have a Salesforce integration. Maybe our sign-up flow should actually say, step one, connect Salesforce to see your report. And if you don't like, if you're not willing to take a step back and you're busy in the world of like, of like, you know, the the tiny tweaks world or like the small small wins world, you'll never see that bigger picture. But I think um, it comes back to like your comfort level for like, you know, taking a big swing versus uh, taking a, a series of like tiny little initiatives. Um, so I, I, th- I think like most people default to optimization because you get all these fancy charts and you can prove that your work was valuable. Uh, whereas I, I would suggest, especially for smaller companies, the, there's much, much more to be won, and we've certainly experienced this so many times in Intercom, where like, where our last five projects might have collectively added a one percent onto our conversion rate, and then a whole new look at things would have either uh, given us a plus or minus, like say seven percent improvement. And sometimes the, it will be negative, but it's okay because at least you've, you've now explored a new area and you can rule it out. But uh, I, I'd much rather like, you know. Uh, Test big ideas, not small ideas, and be ambitious, not conservative. When you're in the early stages of a startup, it is different when you're like a large public company where, like, you know, your Q3 revenue depends on the performance of this form. Yes, you don't want to go and make any massive dramatic changes because you're going to have to report it to Wall Street. Uh, but for most of us, that's not the case, and we actually carry the obligation of risk, in my opinion. All right, just to make sure I understand that, I want to put it in in in, in poli- American political terms. Joe Biden sure. just released a video where he says he's going to stop invading women's personal space. And I would call that an optimization of what a lot of people think is a yeah. safe product. But I think perhaps it's time for a reset. Yes, uh, I would definitely agree. I haven't been following. I, I know I see Biden is like trending hashtag on Twitter right now. But um, I haven't been following that. 
But yes, I mean, that's like he's trying to come up with the best possible message for something that itself isn't very messageable. Uh, and I think maybe uh, a fundamental reset might be a better approach to Des, I think uh, I've, I think I've got to call it. That's a, that's a, that's a great answer, and I, I can only say that I look forward to to to, to meeting you in, in Stockholm and perhaps getting to continue this conversation in person. But I want to thank you very much uh, for being with us today. Thank you for so much for having me, Pep. I really enjoyed the conversation. No worries, as did I. And for those of you uh, listening, again, feel free to tweet your thoughts and uh, feedback with the hashtag business as unusual. If you're someone from bear.app, you know, sell me. And if you're someone from Evernote, then, you know, I'm, uh, I, I'm loyal. <laughs> Retain so don't you. Screw, please don't <laughs> screw with my data. No, that's, I'm just worried about them screwing with my data. Um, but, uh, but big thanks to uh, the Nordic Business Forum and Boom Chicago for making this happen. And uh, we'll, you'll hear us next time on Business as Unusual. And, Des, I'll see you in Stockholm. Cool. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. We're all done. Thank you.